Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Okay, welcome back to the pod, Blacklisted by God, the talk that's got demons run amok. That's Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the internet's only podcast history of the devil. I am Klaus Yoder, and with me, as always, is Travis Stevens, my partner in Delightful Heresy. How are you this evening, Travis? I'm really excited. I'm going to get my booster on Saturday, theoretically. Then I'll be boosted. Get get boosted. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah, I've, I've been boosted as well. So yeah, we're, we're like powered up like video game characters. That's, that's fantastic. Um, leveled awesome. up, leveled up. Awesome. So yeah, so we're back here to continue our second part of Beware the Hippo, Augustine's Revenge. And last time we got into Augustine's biography his position on some long-standing topics that are close to our heart, such as the myth of the Watchers, the precise timing of the Devil's Fall, as well as how his demonology plays into the long, awful legacy of Christian anti-Semitism. So this time around, we're going to be discussing a little more of how Augustine's beef with the Manichaeans and the Pelagians informs his demonology that his account of atonement, which is how Jesus beats up the devil and how all that fits into his ideas about the apocalypse. Then we'll leave you with some of our main takeaways about Augustine's place in the devil's brutal biography. Yes, 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 we certainly shall. So something that keeps coming up is Augustine's strategic use of ambiguity when it comes to the questions of nature and freedom, like the nature of human beings as created beings by God, whether we're made well, whether we're made poorly, and our ability to make choices for ourselves about how we're going to live our lives and relate to God. And there's a lot of ambiguity, and Augustine's opponents picked up on it. They pricked up their little ears when they saw how he was trying to... uh, skate this narrow thin ice yeah this whole way that he uses ambiguity theologically in his argument for some reason is bringing up shades of snl's ambiguously gay duo for me (laughs) so i just thought i would name that now and this idea that one can your opponents might like use ambiguity against you that's all just wanted to drop that in for you like yeah, like I just I'm trying to imagine Augustine as 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 guest hosting SNL and and uh, having wow. to deal with that cartoon. Yeah, uh, <laughs> so like you know, oh wow, that would be the worst episode ever. Can you imagine? No yeah. sense of humor. The like you know awkwardness around his sexuality. Eek! I would not want to watch that. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, a lot of ambiguity. I don't think Augustine has room for a duo. Uh, he, he seems like he's, he's his own rock star. But anyway, his opponents are, are picking up on the way that ambiguity surfaces in his theology and how wishy-washy can sort of be on certain things. And I guess you really get to know someone when you see who their enemies are. But what does it mean if Augustine is like enemies with everyone at any given moment? So we mentioned the Manichaeans, a group he used to belong to as an auditor. Um, I, I was, I've been an auditor in certain uh, grad school classes. I don't know if it, it got me in any higher up the Manichaean org chart, 
But I'm yeah, going to guess uh, no, it didn't. <laughs> yeah. So much of what we're discussing comes out of that confrontation. The Manichaeans argued that natural evil produced sin, that because creation or some aspects of creation were just bad, that that's why people did bad things. So it makes sense, right? And Augustine argued the opposite, that evil came out of the sins that human beings did freely, that it was that evil is only a consequence of the mistakes that humans make. Augustine's point is that evil is a huge problem, but nothing is evil in itself. That makes sense? Nothing's evil by nature. And he's some cool imagery to make this point. If, for example, the scorpion's venom were evil in itself, the scorpion would suffer most. Or the fish that swims and breathes in water is happy as a clam, but humans would drown if they attempted that lifestyle. So it's not like anything substantial is the cause of evil, but evil instead is caused by sin entered into freely by angels, by human beings, etc. So yeah, freedom. Freedom is what Augustine is preaching here. Freedom. Gosh, do we love that here in the U.S. of A, especially one of my favorites, the freedom to fail at so many things. But another controversy causes Augustine to curtail his once optimistic assessment of humanity's freedom, and it's against the Pelagians, named after the ascetic moralist Pelagius from the British Isles. And this was a group who rallied around the idea that humans have the ability to perfect themselves morally and spiritually without any outside help from God. No need for grace. We got this. Sort of the spiritual strong men, if you will, and strong women. Indeed, they had the ability, and so they had the responsibility to live in this way of perfection. Yeah, and I, I, I find this is really interesting. It kind of takes me back to some of the stuff we've done on monasticism, monasticism um, and the intense asceticism as a way of building up one's capacities to do things. And so you can see this as like being a not counterintuitive way of thinking about asceticism. It's like, oh, like you have this ability to discipline yourself. So you have the responsibility to keep getting better. Um, and, and I, I, yeah, that there, there's some, you know, yeah, it, it, after Augustine, it seems like very daunting and maybe terrifying, I guess, but yeah, it, makes a degree of sense, right? And there's a certain amount of optimism built into that view that human nature can, through a certain set of practices, achieve something great that Augustine, especially the later Augustine, wants to guard against and say, not without the grace of God. There is no way you can get nowhere. And of course, the <laughs> the Reformation folks and uh, and many others will dogpile onto that position as well. And, sorry, dogpile, it sounds like they're against it, but they're really for it. Can you insert a, a sports ball analogy for us here, Klaus? I think we need we need a better sports analogy. Um, they are, they're... I think that I think dogpile is fine. They're they're jumping on the fumble. That's true. They're they're, they're all yeah. They're, yeah. They're jump. They're all trying to get that ball. The ball of, of the grace, ball of grace, right? if you will. Um, right, ball of grace. Yeah. <laughs> the um, title of my memoir. But, ball of grace. <laughs> I'm just a I'm just a ball of grace, <laughs> um, hurling down a skeet ball track on the piers of the Jersey Shore, playing an outdated game. Anyway. <laughs> um, 
I, what's interesting though is that it seems like Pelagius thought that he and Augustine were on the same side for this for a while because as I keep saying, Augustine changes his mind, um, and there's something cool like you change your evolve, your views evolve. Like there's something like yeah, like there's some intellectual honesty to that. Um, it's just that when people who think they agree with you find that your views have evolved in such a way as that you're accusing them of being the servants of the devil, like that's when it sort of gets to be inconvenient. But anyway, Pelagius is. Uh, like sort of strong valorization of responsibility does kind of remind me of moments in Augustine when he's giving an account of why the fall, the devil and the fallen angels are like why that's their fault. So it's interesting, like how responsibility seems to be like really this, this uh, stumbling block for a lot of these theologians. Yeah. This idea of, you know, personal moral responsibility seems sometimes to really play a central role. And then other times exit stage left. So sorry, sports fans, we're moving to the theater now in terms of personal responsibility. When Augustine is talking about demons, um, there's a distinction he makes. He says that demons are responsible for their own fall but their beatification was always already dependent on the grace of God. So we keep running into this quagmire. Everything good that happens, including the original state of grace of these angels, depends on God. But if anything bad happens, i.e. the fall of the angels, then it's your fault because of freedom and freedom fries and all that. Yeah, yeah. It seems like this is all a little inconvenient for the human side of this relationship. <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, Augustine's affirmation of predestination, the idea that God wills the people who are saved and in the double predestination variety, which Augustine seems to embrace, God also wills those who are damned and causes them to be damned, like actively. And, uh, this caused adherence to Pelagius's rigorism and optimism to accuse Augustine of just being a crypto Manichaean. We talked about Christianized Manichaeism before. If you can't beat him, join him. He didn't get that far as an auditor. So he's like, I'm going to sneak this all in over here. And we've gone over already how he tries to distinguish himself from their views. Like it's human beings fault that there's evil. It's not like cosmic evil's fault that there's evil because cosmic evil is like insignificant and microbial in comparison to the goodness of God. But it bears emphasizing that this tradition that is largely forgotten outside of the dusty stacks of gloomy libraries haunted by desperate men, mummified in tweed. Really, this tradition, this tradition of Manichaeism that's barely remembered had a tremendous influence on Christian theology because Augustine did seem to learn something from the Manichaeans that informed these concepts of grace and providence, I would say. Yeah, but I think you're pointing to a real balance between the Pelagian and Manichaean positions that Augustine's in some ways trying to posit a middle ground between the um, pretty radical dualism that we see in some strains of what we think Manichaeans may have practiced, um, which involves this outsized role of the devil and the Pelagian side of things, which seems to have too small a role for the grace of God, if that's fair to say. So, right. So classic middle position, like classic, the, uh, this and this is always like the Catholic rhetoric, right? It's like the middle path. Oh, oh, oh! Um, afraid not. Afraid that's the Anglican middle path, my friend. Try again. Oh. Try again. Yes. Yeah. The uh, well. third way, actually. No, middle path might be. Ca I mean, maybe I'll concede middle path to you. I don't think that's ours. I think everyone. I think everyone who's like has a gigantic ideology and successful institutions like we're the middle way. Uh, yeah, which you know, is the, you know usually not yeah. true. <laughs> but, right. 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 Um, right, right, right. So anyway, so. 
the Pelagians and Augustine were having like a locker room fight over the over theology um, and they needed to they wanted to diss Augustine's overly dualistic theology what might they say to him Klaus what do you think Augustine bro this is like a yoke devil in your cosmos man you're giving him too many steroids I'm too powerful for your puny god. Yeah, like that. that that's yeah, <laughs> thank you. Um, and that is one of your many talents and why we are such wonderful partners in this project together yeah. um, because we each have our strengths. So I'm glad that you got to say that. Um, thank you for that. So Bad Schwarzenegger impersonations are my exactly, strength. Exactly, yeah. Good. So um, that is to say the Pelagians accuse Augustine of conceding to the devil an outsized role in Augustine's theology. And, of course, that endangers God's power. Who is the most powerful now? Um, so, see, that's why you did it the first. It was better. Um, we all know this. And um, I'm appropriately shamed and sorry. So, Augustine <laughs> has to respond. The governator. Exactly. So, Augustine has to respond back to the Pelagians that every sin done by every human does not put them in the kingdom of the devil. Everyone sins. Combat against the devil takes place inside human psychology, right? Um, so we've transposed this like kingdom of devil language, this cosmic language into the psyche. That is now where this battle takes place. It's a, it's a, it's a radical downsizing if you think about it. So he writes, the devil is not to be blamed for everything. There are times when a man is his own devil in his like almost sulking fashion. He writes this. Yeah, and he has to concede this to the Pelagians. He's, he's sort of being browbeat into, into giving up the more mythological cosmic dualism that he was tapping into there, I would say. And I would say like that's also that's also how St. Paul writes, right? That like the powers and principalities, like that's not there's a psychological aspect, of course, to what Paul writes, but there's also this cosmic diabology at work, I would say. Um, and this point's important for uh, a scholar we lean on a bit, uh, Forsyth. He, he writes that Augustine is the beginning of a trend to play down the old adversary role of Satan. Satan being a continuation of dualistic struggles against monster figures going back to like Sumerian mythology and ancient Babylon. By psychologizing the devil and placing him so squarely in God's plan, so snugly in God's toolbox... The old mythological structure of good versus evil is done with. There's just good. There's just good left. There's no bad. It doesn't really exist. What we have instead is a story about the human being as a divided self. The dualism is psychological and culminates in converting oneself to God. What uh, people who used to speak ancient Greek would call metanoia. Metanoia. That's that's what that's how that's how you say repent in the New Boom. Testament. Boom. Metanoia. <laughs> so at the same time, Augustine still has to work within the tradition. And this means answering the essential Christological question, how did Jesus save humanity? Along with some other Patristic thinkers, like Gregory of Nyssa, Augustine maintained that the devil had legal rights over humanity, 
as well as control over the whole species. Yeah, so that's important. And, and like Irenaeus, the combat, quote unquote, against the devil is one that excludes a show of power. And this is always the weird thing about the Christus Victor um, ransom theory of the atonement. It's, it's always like this, again, tapping into the mythology, but you can't actually have a fight. I guess there's plenty of fighting in Revelation. We'll get to that. Um, but if you were going to have like this, if Jesus came in and just like, instead of, uh, instead of resisting the temptations in the desert from the devil with grace and dignity, just like went Rocky Balboa on his ass, like that would satisfy the devil on some level. Since the devil loves power, no, you're not going out like that buster. You're not getting beaten up. You're going to get beaten by the thing you despise most, which is moral righteousness. So... In some, then, Augustine is doing his absolute best to make this sort of combat or war version of the myth of um, good and evil in Christianity. He's trying to make that myth as boring as he can. He doesn't want us to get into this like video game version of Christianity. Yeah. In essence, because he doesn't want the devil to become too powerful in his theological system. That just raises questions he can't answer with the commitments he's already tied himself to. So this refusal to take up the cosmic myth of good and evil in the way that, say, Manichaeans might do is maybe, in Augustine's eyes, God's version of owning the libs, or in this case, owning the deems, that is, the demons. Ha <laughs> uh, Yeah, massive trolling operation underway. And it, it invites us to think of the Trinity as perhaps not some abstract geometrical shape in infinity but maybe as a russian internet troll factory tweeting out with the chat bots in, i don't know inciting rage from it, their the trinity's opponent which is the devil right but yeah okay but he is toning it down instead back to this boring point instead of gregory's kick-ass fish hook for catching leviathan we get this other image in augustine a mousetrap yeah, so strange. Why pass up the fish hook? Uh, he, he, has to, he has to put his own touch on it, right? He's got to like do like sure. the chef's kiss Augustine version. And so Jesus is the cheese in the mousetrap. Sweet Jesus, Travis. Che- Sweet che- Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> wow, I'm, <laughs> I do appreciate that. Um, so what is the trap here? It's the cross, according to Augustine. Um, and the cross is the trap that the devil lays for Christ, but gets caught in himself. So maybe it's also functions as a trap for us as well? Yeah, I mean, you look at the history of Christianity, I suppose you can make that case, but yeah. I feel like the fish hook works better. Jesus is the worm. The devil is the great white shark. Classic. But in this case, the devil is a mouse? Is this your king? Mickey Mouse, emperor (laughs) of the damned? (laughs) Like, Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) Well, I mean, when you get down to choosing which metaphor is going to work for your theology, I suppose this one fits better because he is taking up an explicitly privative account of evil. That is, you know, evil has no being in Augustine's theological system. The only thing that has being is good, is what God creates. And evil is not created. It has no being. So when Hannah Arendt writes on Augustine's view of evil, I think she compares the lowliness of evil to mildew. So maybe this is like a step up from that, actually. 
a, a small one. I don't know. It depends on what you're more grossed out by. My mother-in-law would definitely say that it's um, mice are the creepier and worse of the two. So there's that. But yeah, I think they both evoke like neglected, dirty, abandoned city apartment kitchen or something. So yeah, I think that they're in the same ballpark. So yeah, maybe this is work. Maybe this is working. This is working. Um, so one of the big splits in atonement theory, that's what we're talking about, how Jesus beats the devil, atonement theory, is between the dominant paradigm for the first chunk of centuries, the ransom theory or the Christus Victor theory, which we've been talking about, and satisfaction theory. I can't we did not plan that, but that's what just happened. <laughs> Which is, satisfaction theory is the idea that Jesus doesn't die to trick the devil, but instead dies to satisfy his abusive father God's justice, since it was God who has been wronged since the fall of the garden. Because, you know, it's really God who's been the victim here the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Trinitarianism gets really weird in the satisfaction theory, too. It just gets very awkward. Anyway, uh, for a future episode. So Augustine works to account for the wrath of God, looking specifically at Romans 5, in which Paul writes of humanity being satisfied by Christ's blood and thereby saved from the wrath of God. Yeah. And God here, we're referring to the... Fa- it, like it, Once we get into Trinitarian theology, which Paul is not into, but... They really drive off a cliff. If we're fast forwarding, then it just, yeah, oof. But the seeds of it, I would say, are definitely there. Um, Between, in the relationship specifically between the son and the father, right? But we still have the mousetrap atonement thing going on. So it seems like Augustine is blending the two. It's a blender mousetrap. That sounds really gross. Like the the mouse gets caught in in the blender. Maybe it's a blender. Maybe it's a blender with a mousetrap attached to it. So it's like if you okay. didn't clean up the blender, and the mice come out, and then the mouse, the, the, the blender mousetrap is just there to, you know, make sure that mice don't get into your unwashed dishes. Okay, or like too a lazy to do. What about like a Rube Goldberg situation where like the mousetrap and then it flies up and like slaps the on button mm-hmm. of the bl- mm-hmm. anyway. Um, yeah. So this kind of thing, this blend between the two models, makes sense. If the devil is God's tool, then he's most excellently a tool of wrath, right? Afflicting and tempting the population. And this goes back to Enoch and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah, the idea that in the in the Dead Sea Scrolls where uh, Biliel is, is created by God and God hated him. It's like, wow, cold. But that makes a lot of sense. And by the way, this all connects to Augustine's view of the apocalypse and the millennium from the book of Revelation, which we did, we talked about for a long time last year in the dark, dark months of December and January. So as you, as you, dear listener, doubtlessly recall, the millennium is this moment from Revelation 20 when Christ comes again and establishes a thousand year kingdom of peace and law and order with a thin blue line on planet Earth, manned by the martyred saints. Um, we plan this Millenarianism. To like, um, we plan this to coincide with the beginning of Advent, which is, I think, like a week and a half from now. Because that wow. anticipates the second coming of Christ uh, liturgically. So we're just bringing that in right now. You're welcome, everyone. Yeah, and and you can ask Travis what color chasuble he's wearing right now as he as he delivers this. Yeah, it would. For the, well, uh, it depends if we're going to do like a serum right blue, which is possible, or a purple. I haven't really decided yet, but we have options, y'all. We have <laughs> options. Yeah. So 
don't be stressed. We have options and we will be liturgically prepared for all of your Advent needs. And the second coming um, of Christ. We're ready for that too. And the second, right, right. So Christ and the saints are on that thin blue line, keeping law and order and peace on planet earth. Uh, <laughs> and millenarism is this theological sensibility whereby you're anticipating a fundamental change in the way the world works. And maybe you think things are going to get really bad before this new world government, or maybe you think things have to get really good before it kicks off. And there are all kinds of readings, and we talked about this like a year ago, so check it out. Anyway, in the City of God, the millennium kicks off, not on some unknown date like like in Deep Space Nine or something, or Dune, you know, a billion years in the future, but right when Jesus is crucified. And Augustine doesn't care about it lasting like a literal thousand years. Like, get over it, calculator boys. Like, no one is that literal. It's just the name for this spiritual kingdom on earth that precedes the coming of the Antichrist, which actually that name doesn't even appear in Revelation, but I'm going to be all pedantic. It's like the beast of the land. That's that's who that is. So when Jesus is crucified, that's when the devil is incarcerated in hell. And he has to wait there until the Antichrist comes and the final battle of Armageddon ensues. And now we're back to that psychological dualism bit. If the devil is locked in hell... And big Dante energy with this, by the way. He's only operating in the hearts of those who haven't yet been saved or who are predestined for damnation. So in a sense, he's kind of out of the fight. It's more of a cold war than anything else. And hell is very cold where the devil is in Dante's Inferno. Oh, yeah. It's like frozen. Aren't his legs frozen in? I should know this. (gasps) Oh! Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Can't move, yeah, can't just move. the wings flapping. Right, his wings flapping. The wings, the wings are flapping. That, that's what makes yeah. it cold in that part of hell. It's amazing. Kids, that's how your refrigerator works. It's, <laughs> it's Satan flapping in hell. <laughs> I'm dreaming of For a all white you kids Christmas, right? I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. Uh, anyway, I hear Judeca, this uh, region where the, del- the devil is frozen in, in Dante, of course, as you all know, is really beautiful this time of year, Klaus. So The skiing, the skiing, the, yeah, the, the winter sports. They could have an Olympics down there. I feel yeah. like they probably um, don't have holiday lights up, though. Just, I mean, no, my two cents no. here. Draußen wird es frisch und ich drehe mir noch zwei. Die Boxen sind zu laut und sie holen wieder Polizei. Was hab ich getan? Der Kommissar, wir sind doch brav. Was kann ich dafür, dass du nicht magst, was du da machst? Draußen wird es frisch und ich dreh mir noch zwei. Die Boxen sind zu laut und sie holen wieder Polizei. Was hab ich getan? Der Kommissar, wir sind doch brav. Was kann ich dafür, dass du nicht magst, was du da machst? All right, yeah, so let's, let's round out our, our joyous reflections on the rampaging hippo that is Augustine uh, with a few, pull together some loose ends, bring in some things we didn't get to talk about yet. One of the things back from the beginning of last episode was Augustine's fight with the Donatists in North Africa, the people who wanted their priests to be pure and moral and not traitors. And Augustine Although, said, like, frankly, like, it would be great to have priests who are good. I just, well, that, this is I the know irony the Donatists the thing, get right? a really bad, they get a really bad rap, but I just would like to say, I really like it when priests at least try to be good people. That's one of my favorite things when they try. 
Yeah, exactly. That's and that's one of the things we're going to talk about. I think is like right. The Donatists get this rap of being like, "Oh, you don't respect the sacraments," but it's like, what is what is Augustine giving everyone permission to do by taking the moral worth of of ministers out of the equation completely? Right. Hmm. Anyway, yeah, um, yeah. So Augustine's ideas make moral standing inessential to the daily operations of the church as an imperial Catholic global institution. The church is now something bigger than the people who do Christianity. And this is like this talking point I keep coming back to about instrumentality from that Athanasius episode. And it's striking how the same logic of priests as morally indifferent liturgical tools for the operation of God's grace through the sacraments and I keep repeating, this is like the same logic as how theologians would come to explain demons as the role, in uh, the role of tools for divine providence. So Jesus is Christ, Jesus Christ in the flesh is a tool of divine providence. The priests are morally indifferent tools for divine providence. And the demons are also tools for divine providence. It's all ex opere operato, which is to say, owing to the operation of the operation. It doesn't matter if you're a bad priest or a good demon. The speak one Latin thing to me, about... Klaus. Speak Latin. <laughs> yeah, all, all night. Uh, the one thing, <laughs> the one thing about the sacraments is that they have an objective, well-nigh magical power at a moral level. This participation in sacraments changes people. It's taking the demon's ability to trick people with magic and illusions and replacing that with something good and real and powerful, and that's sacraments. And one image from North African Christian practices that expresses this really nicely is of the baptismal pool or font, you know, filled with water for baptizing people. And when the baptism happens, this huge fish that is Jesus slips in and swims around with you. So, like, that's a thing. Not to be confused with the fish hook, right? We have a lot of, you know... <laughs> it's a Mediterranean civilization. What can I tell you? Like, Right, right. Fair enough. Um, I want to get back to the Donatist fight for a minute for some reason. That's just really taken by this. I think the way I read Augustine on the issue is that priests... We, we shouldn't be worried about the morality of priests when we're talking about the efficacy of the sacraments. Just not the same as an endorsement of like evil priests, just to make this for sure, for sure. I, but I think the point is, is that like the operation of the sacraments also then seems hierarchically to be the most important thing they do. Yes, and so right? Still, <laughs> right, exactly. So like the fact that they're bad, you know, one needs to I think couch that if you're making any kind of moral argument here about the leadership of Christian people or any people for that matter, is that they should be good or attempt to be good. Right. Like that, that is somehow important. And when their number one role is totally independent of their morality, you find yourself sort of, I think, cornered. And Augustine does. Yeah. IMHO. Yeah. OK, yeah. so let's let's move to Augustine's. Eccle well, actually, I am already talking about Augustine's ecclesiology. Keep, keep talking about it. Keep I'm going to keep it, yeah. talking church talk. So ecclesiology. Right. Um, theory of the church. He is seeking to reunite humanity to repair the divisions that ensue from the fall and from the Tower of Babel. Another good story of humanity falling apart. The church need not be isolated from the world. It can change the world and restore something like its original unity. It exercises massive coercive power. One of Augustine's most famous and unfortunate exegeses is that of Luke 14, 23. Go out into the... Nope. Go out onto the highways and compel them to come in 
that my house be filled. So it sounds really nice, right? Like go invite people. Like We're having a party. We're yeah, having right. a party. Come to church. We're having a party. I mean, literally my church is having like an Afro-Peruvian dance party um, in the parking lot on Saturday if you want to come. Um, but Com- anyway. Compel them to dance. Compel we, them to enter the dance. But, but we do not. We will not be compelling anyone to dance, just so you know. Um, there will be no forced conversions here. It's literally just a party. Uh, anyway, Augustine reads this passage, which sounds so innocent and nice, to mean that, of course, heretics and schismatics are to be forced to re-enter the church, just as a father is obliged to beat children, oh, Lord have mercy, for playing with snakes, or to tie up someone who is mentally ill so they don't fall off a cliff. It's just like, it starts out bad, and then it gets worse, and then it gets worse. (laughs) So there's no escape from the church because its duties have become cosmic in scope. The rationale behind this is this overly confident paternalism on the part of church bishops who seem to be filling the gap for imperial officials, at least in terms of this disciplinary role in the society. You know, the Roman Empire has collapsed. Who is going to step in to fill the breach? Other guys with lots of authority this time, though they're Christian, which Maybe, I don't know, naively I thought that meant they would be nice, turns out not. And this reflects an assumption about divine paternalism and the chastisement of the world. So he uses language here about subjection, which he takes from, you know, wives be subject to your husbands. And then it gets like, it gets political, you know, um, citizens and nations are mentioned as he thinks about the social fabric of, the world, this union of humanity fitting in under the rulership of kings. This is kind of what it's, I hear a kind of um, nostalgia for the Roman Empire here that's reincarnated in, you know, you guessed it, the church, right? This benevolent rulership um, of kings or bishops, if you will, in this case, is what he's looking for to, um, to create a, a world that is still characterized by the order that is mandated by God through these priests, these self-same priests who are the ones, you know, administering the sacraments, et cetera, independent of their morality. Yeah. We're a long yeah, way yeah. from the philosopher king, though, aren't we, Klaus? Yeah. Good, good riddance, you philosopher bum. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Augustine's got plenty to say about all the false philosophies that, that mar uh, – the, gymna- the gymnasiums of, of the ancient Mediterranean. Um, but yeah, a few things there. It's so interesting and striking that the church becomes cosmic in scope just at the moment that the devil's being booted out of cosmological, mythological struggle. The devil's getting small, 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 small. And the church is getting big, 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 big. <laughs> um, yeah, we're, we're getting into like real like grand inquisitor territory where the, the, where the, the church itself in, in Dostoevsky's bad vision of, of things is, uh, and not mad, like, like totally spot on vision of things is this force that's, that's antagonistic to, to God, God's self. Um, so that's one thing I picked up on. And this idea that you were drawing out of the church being the things that links the thing that links citizens to citizens, nation to nation, the, the binding force, it reminds me of our race and ethnicity episode and the idea that Christianity could be an ethnicity or a race. And that this this is like this sort of almost totalizing drive to compel people to 
revert to or be restored to this primordial race. Yeah, really, really something. Um, but yeah, so like one of the things that identifies this people is their participation in the sacraments, uh, which we were talking about before, like baptism and the Eucharist and stuff. And the sacraments in Augustine are compared to tattoos on the back of the hand that identify soldiers in the imperial army. That's There used to be tattoos on the back of Roman soldiers' hands to identify them. And so that way, deserters could be compelled to return through this identification. Again, compel them to enter, right? So participation in the sacraments at any point identified you as belonging to the church, as like the way you would belong to the Potterfamilias' family or household. So again, it's like calling back to this idea of instrumentality. The sacraments are not just there to make you feel good or restore a relationship with God, but they're also to exercise discipline upon you. And I think that's, that's very striking. This language of compulsion, I feel, is really important when we talk about forcing people back to the church, you know, the schismatics or heretics, forcing them back, compelling them back. Um, the compulsion of deserters through the tattoo, the sacraments compel you back to the church. You know, uh, the power of Christ compels you, Klaus. <laughs> That's all I have to say about that. Yes, 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 so, yes. So this idea of sacraments as marks that are indelible, that have some compulsion or power over us also of course has a counterpart a diabolical counterpart in the mark of the beast uh from revelation this sign that will appear um which itself is probably the mark of cain right draws back mm. on the genesis text of um, it, the revelation is probably playing with that image it's it's the mark of the vaccine scar on your arm you know it's just the, right like yeah uh, i uh, think it was an <laughs> i think it's actually monster the the um energy drink have you seen this like youtube video where it's supposed to be the mark of the devil it's like six six like the you look at the um their logo or something and you it's it's a beautiful well, YouTube video. I highly recommend. I I totally buy it. That okay. shit tastes like ass. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, you know, at this point in my life, I would not touch an energy drink with a ten foot pole. Hashtag middle age. Hashtag insomnia. So I'm just gonna leave that to whoever needs needs that. But uh, yeah. So these <laughs> these sacraments, these markings, as um, one way of thinking of them as having this mirror in diabology is this idea of um, the devil has his marks and the church has its marks. Um, yeah. Speaking of which, we need to do a future episode on um, Machado. Uh, de Assis has this short story called, it's like something like the devil and his church or something. Anyway, future. For sure. Yes. For sure. We'll put that on the list for later. But this shows me what you're talking about right now shows me how influential Augustine is because this is what you get through the whole Middle Ages is this obsession and then culminates in the witch frenzy, witch hunting frenzy of this obsession with the church inverted and and profaned as as the mirror, as a sort of in, like refracted mirror image, the sort of perverse satire of the church. And that's like, yeah, we're getting that here. I mean, I guess we heard... Even Justin Martyr, you could see that in Justin Martyr even, like that the demons are like doing a mockery of Christianity and that's what pagan religion is and stuff like that. Right. So it's, it's right. a real longstanding preoccupation, I guess. But I hear it coming out clearly in Augustine here in a way that seems like, yeah, 
he's the he's the route back to this idea for medieval uh, Western Latin theology, for sure. But yeah, so another thing that kind of when I'm thinking about the priesthood in Augustine, and not just about the ontology of instrumentality that links demons, sacraments, and priests in one glorious happy, loving circle of, of peace, love, and harmony. But it's also something, something that's, that's important, but, but related is, is this emphasis on unity and Catholicity in the church and in doctrine. And the devil crops up in the Donatist controversy as the spirit of division, of schism, which Augustine attributes to satanic jealousy and rebelliousness. This is important because before the imperialization of the church, before the Constantine moment, and for a while after the Constantine moment, it was okay for Christians to see the church as another Noah's Ark that kept them separate and safe from the world. It's like, this place is getting flooded to hell and we're out of here, baby. Now the church is trying to take over the world, to remake the world, a completely different mode of being. And that separatist instinct seems counterproductive to a confident assertion of church leadership by the likes of bishops Augustine and Ambrose, right? Absolutely. Yeah. There's a radically new orientation of Christianity to the world that I think is important to mark at this moment with Augustine. Um, what is, is the world something to be rejected and something that we should flee from as it was in the area era of the martyrs of, for, you know, obvious reasons, <laughs> let's get out of yeah. here. Um, yeah. or is there, is there hope for the world? And so in the one sense you can see Augustine and his, heavy reliance on grace as a kind of depressing form of Christianity. But in another sense, that embrace of the world, the trying to live out Christianity that when the world hasn't ended yet and renegotiating oh, yeah, yeah, its yeah. relationship to the world, is kind of nice. Uh, it can, it, it, it opens up possibilities for um, engaging more beautifully with the world through love, I would say, as opposed to, <laughs> just uh, beam me up, Scotty, kind of version yeah. of Christianity. It's true. It's true. But I think that, like, that's for me, like, that's also what makes it the fact that, like, proto Catholic, proto Orthodox theology, as like, we see the likes of Augustine, that's able to be like, no, your body's good. No, the world is good. Like, they're actually even more dangerous. It's <laughs> <'Cause>, like, <laughs> your body's good. It's just broken. And everything <laughs> your body does is evidence of its sinful rebelliousness and your, your spiritual sinful rebellious. It's like, okay, but like, but technically your body's good. <laughs> You're like, oh, thanks buddy. <laughs> a um, lot of good that's going to do you. Right. Like, when you smother the good news with all that baggage. Right. Yeah. Um, right. And so I think, yeah, like, I think what, you, like, if you wanted to take something from this though, it would be like, right. Look at creation and look at what creation has and be like, maybe we shouldn't assume this is all fucked up. Like maybe there's some things about it that are actually working well and that we can affirm and we don't have to account for everything that makes us slightly uncomfortable because of our, of our constrictive moralities. Like maybe we need to like actually rethink some of that. And I think that is that if you wanted to take a, a more uh, hopeful stance on this stuff, then yeah, I think, I think that's where you could go with it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. By no means has Augustine realized what I would call the appropriate balance of critiquing the world um, from a Christian perspective. <laughs> Let me be clear about that. But right. yeah, that, that he opens the possibility to do work that can embrace um, creation while calling Christians to doing something better. Um, it's there. There's, there's a seed there that I think is, is worth noting. 
So I would like to take a moment of personal privilege to thank everyone for listening to us talk about Pelagians and Donatists and Manichaeans. Uh, why? Because I love I love me some some heresiology, some study all the of isms, heretics. all the isms. All we, want we want them all. Yeah, we want them all. We love them. Neoplatonism. We just we want to get into that. I want to thank you for bearing with us on some of these terms. Um, I think it's really valuable, not just because I was totally obsessed with it in my master's program, uh, but also because I think understanding why Christian Orthodoxy takes the forms that it did. Um, necessarily takes you to understanding these other Christian groups. Um, it tells us about how power is working, certainly, how um, authority is being legitimized. And with Augustine, the stakes seem really high. He's actually having to think through why Catholicism and not, say, Manichaeanism or Neoplatonism. And the devil, as we've tried to show, is at the center of each account of where he sees those traditions failing. So this is all just to say that as a method for thinking about Christianity, theology, etc., studying the devil gives you so much, is such a great vantage point for seeing the textures and contours of Christian theology. Not only are both of these traditions wrong, or partially right, about how they conceive of evil, but their errors are themselves evidence of the devil's agency in the world, etc. Yeah, a lot of layers there. A lot of layers there. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's right. And I, I do think the devil, for me, just like personally, has been has opened up so many dimensions of of the tradition that I hadn't quite been able to see before. And yeah, I think it's I think it's really an amazing way to get insight into into what Christianity thinks it's doing um, and what it, and what it's actually doing. So yeah, I totally agree with that. And with that, we will look forward to our next episode. Should we tell them? I think we should tell them. The next episode is on your article. It's going to be amazing. Oh, yeah. We're going to talk about uh, an article that I wrote about about police shows. So it's going to be a little bit different. But there is some devil stuff there. So for all the devil heads, for all you heavy metal, 666, Black Sabbath listening metal bangers or whatever. Uh, yeah, there's still some devil there. Um, it'll just be it'll just be racially charged so you know you'll be you'll be there for that too but yeah so stay tuned for more racially charged content from Travis and Klaus and thank you for listening see you next time this pod is made possible by support from the satanic horde Asmodeus Mammon Leviathan Beelzebub and listeners like you thank you thank you